he refers to her endearingly as Magnificent Mary. And so, Mary, we thank you. Please stand up for a minute. Let people greet you. Thank you so much. Mrs. Mala has a special and unique ministry among seminary students' wives, and for that we pray God's richest blessing on her. I often say that generally speaking, generally speaking, one's heroes are either much older than him or may not even be living. But in my case, my hero is somewhat younger than me. And Dr. Almola has truly been one of my great heroes. God has uniquely gifted him. Even when he lived in Atlanta as a journalist and a theologian, he was editor of the Baptist Index, I remember reading his column with a great deal of interest. And I said, this old lowly Anglican used to get blessed. As a matter of fact, I can tell you a secret. I often said this to other people. If all Southern Baptists are like Dr. Mola, I would become one in a heartbeat. <laughs> but God uniquely gifted him with an intellect, with abilities that are so unique. I believe every generation, in every generation, God raises. We don't have prophets in the, in the Old Testament sense, but we do have prophets in the New Testament for those who say, thus says the Lord. And his briefing, if you don't get it, I hope you will. It is very insightful, and I, I, I read it every day. But not only that, God called him at a very young age to be the president of the largest seminary in the world. I will never forget reading about his inauguration. The first time he was there, he was very young, 33, I think, if I remember correctly. And the press was there, and one of the press People asked him, he said, what, what, what are you going to do about your age? <laughs> he said, well, I'll get older. <laughs> well, you've got to be quick to, to answer a question like that. And I'm just so grateful to the Lord that he raised a man like this for our time in, our, in this country and even around the world, who is able to look at the news, able to look at events, and able to look, look at trends from a biblical perspective and then clearly enunciate the biblical answer. Sometimes it's a rebuke, and we des des richly deserve it. Sometimes it's an encouragement and a challenge. And so if a seminarian looking for to go to seminary, Southern Seminary, if you're a high school student looking for a college, boys' college right there on campus, and uh, at the end you will have uh, an opportunity to come and greet Dr. Mola. But I, I cannot tell you, my heart is so full with gratitude and thankfulness because I follow him. I see how, how much he travels. And every time I see him somewhere speaking, I just pray for strength and health and continued ability for him and Mary. Well, Dr. Mola, would you come and bring God's Word to us? We are so thankful for you, and we thank you thankful for your ministry. God bless you all. Thank you. What a joy to be here at Church of the Apostles, and I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My heart is full, and uh, Mary and I are both just thrilled to be here this morning, and uh, thr thrilled to see friends, new and old, and 
to be here in a church where the very name of the church is the essence of what I have tried to do my entire life. I try to explain to people, my great ambition is to preach and teach just like the apostles. In a church that is established upon Christ and the apostles, the apostolic testimony, and the energy and joy of the apostles is evidenced in this church. And I appreciate those very kind words from my brother, Michael. Mary and I are so thrilled to be here with Michael and Elizabeth. And uh, I remember when I came here as editor of the Christian Index, you had just begun what what would be the Church of the Apostles. And uh, there were people who did not like you for doing it. And there were the same people who didn't like me. And sometimes in life, you discover your friends by the fact that you are mutually disliked by the right people. And then I saw how the Lord blessed the ministry, and I heard the gospel preached so clearly, and God's Word honored so thoroughly. And then I saw how the Lord has blessed and built this ministry, and now I get to go all over the world. And I can tell you that right from this place, from this pulpit, from your pastor, and, and right from this spot so strategically located right here in Atlanta, Georgia, you're reaching so much of the world for Christ where no other voice would go. So, my dear brother, thank you. What an honor to be here with you and with all of you. And every time I come here, I recognize that I was younger the last time I was here. <laughs> and that's profoundly true this time. I turned 60 just a few, just a few days ago, actually. And so going back to what Michael kindly reminded us of, I did have that reporter look at me and just say, what do you, you're 33 years old, what are you going to do about it? And this is what I did about it. Uh, this is what I did about it. I, uh, this, is, uh, this, this is what happens. Abraham Lincoln said that by the time a man is 40, he owns his face. I guess as you get older, you own all the rest of yourself too. This is just what it is, the testimony But what a joy. I look back over the years, and I just think, what a joy that I have been able to see models of faithfulness. Now, of course, the the landscape's dotted dotted with models of unfaithfulness, and and that grieves us. But you just have to know my joy in coming here to be with you and, and being right here in a model of faithfulness, not only in the pulpit, but in the pews of this church. You're making a difference, and what a joy to be together. I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 44. We're going to read beginning at verse 9, and I ask that you listen as I read this text, and even if it is familiar to you and it is not familiar to enough Christians, even if it is familiar to you, I pray that in the hearing of this text this morning you will hear the shock of it. The Holy Spirit speaks through Isaiah. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. 
The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it and planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god. His idol, he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern, for He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes." A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for Your Word, every word of Holy Scripture. We're so thankful for the prophet Isaiah and how You spoke through him. And Father, we know that not only were You speaking through the prophet Isaiah for his day, but for our day. And thus we pray by Your Holy Spirit to hear Your Word, and not only to hear it, but to heed it, to obey it, to trust our lives to Christ and to Your Word. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I was recently in Great Britain, and while I was there, Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, came out with his latest book. It's a book actually addressed to teenagers, to adolescents and uh, high school and college students, encouraging them also to become atheists. But interestingly, Dawkins, who is also one of the world's most famous evolutionary scientists, Dawkins lost his track. He, 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 he wandered off the trail he betrayed the fact that even the world's most famous atheist is not quite as atheistic as the atheist wants us to think he is. Because he was asked a question, well, if you're an atheist, do you want then religion to disappear from the face of the earth? And years ago, when he wrote his best-selling book, he said, yes, but now he said, no. He said, no, I don't think that would be a good idea. All right. What kind of atheist can you be if you want Christianity to continue? 
So the reporter asked him and said, and said well, what, what do you mean that, that, that it would be a bad thing for society if religion disappeared? And he said, well, evidently, religion is important for some people in order that they will behave. It just might happen that if religion disappeared, and even if belief in God actually disappeared, that people just might misbehave. And you know, they just might. As a matter of fact, they are. You look around the world as we see it today, and it can only be explained by the fact that men and women, young people, don't fear God. And and again, you, you would at least hope, as you're considering an atheist, that the atheist would hear himself say, I think the demise of religion would be bad for society. Now, brothers and sisters, let's just remind ourselves, we're not living and dying for religion. We're not trusting religion. We're trusting Jesus Christ. But we understand what he was talking about there. What he was saying is belief in God turns out to be essential, and and not only a God who, who in some general sense exists, but the God of the Bible who is the the creator, omnipotent, sovereign God who will judge the law-giving God who is also the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, It turns out that even though Richard Dawkins did not want to be so explicit, that is what he was saying. And I had to wonder, does he know what he has in his hands? Over here, he says, I'm an atheist. Over here, he says, you better not be. And there's a basic irrationality that seems to be driven right through this entire picture. But then when you think about it, there's a basic irrationality that is now driven through our entire society. We are a society. We're living in the midst of a civilization that is, that is right now a, a horrifying experiment in irrationality. And frankly, it works both ways. You have people who say, I'm sure there is no God. You know, the, the, the rise of the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation, now at least one out of five of all adults and one out of three of, the, uh, of, of young people who are 39 and younger, and they say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. But on the other hand, they show a yearning for God that you can even sense in their insistence that they don't know Him. And on the other hand, you have people who identify as Christians, and, and, and yet they're not looking at both of their own hands, because even as they profess Christ, they're not living as if they do. Our only rescue is always Scripture. There, 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 there's no way out of this irrationality but the power of God and the Word of God and Scripture. There's, there, there's no way out. This irrationality is now driven through our society. And, and in the civilization that's around us, we see this irrationality coming in the form of a society that can't define anything anymore. I, I am still astounded, still, still astounded at the fact that we are a society that is now saying by Supreme Court decree that a man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman. And, you know, that's just 2015. This is just 2019. But so many in our society want to say, well, let's just move on. We're just moving on. Oh, wait just a minute. 
We just took the most basic institution of human society, which is given to us in Scripture, in mission in Genesis chapter 1, in structure in Genesis chapter 2. Let's just remind ourselves, those are the first two chapters of the Bible. And we just said that it can be something that, of course, it can't be. We're living in a time when so many people say the only thing that must be mandatory is tolerance. And yet they turn out to be the least tolerant people on the planet. Or you have people who say, I believe that all values and all morality, all statements of moral judgment are relative, that all truth is relative. And then they say, but what you just did was wrong. Well, which is it, left hand or right hand? Or you have postmodernism, those who came along and said there isn't any such thing as objective truth. Every statement of truth is a disguised claim to power, and, and in order to liberate humanity, we've got to, we've got to, to lay bare the falsity of those, of those truth claims, and yet they want to come back and say, but two plus two does equal four. In other words, there are people who want a postmodern therapist and they want a postmodern professor, but they don't want a postmodern pilot at 33,000 feet. <laughs> they certainly don't want a postmodern heart surgeon. They want a heart surgeon who believes in propositional truth. How do we explain this? Well, then we have another question, and, and that is. In a world of irrationality, how do we know what rational is? So, so sort of like uh, thinking of the novels of Franz Kafka. I mean, if you're in an insane asylum, you're always sure you're the one sane person. <laughs> you, you're always ready to just look at everybody else and say, Every, all these people are crazy. Well, here we are. What is the rescue from this kind of irrationality? The, the prophet Isaiah here gives us a portrait of this irrationality that takes the form of idolatry, and, 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 and that's what we need to see in this passage. This is one of the most honest passages in Scripture. It's satire. Human beings aren't good at satire. Our satire often turns self-serving and mean. But this is Holy Spirit-inspired satire, and boy, is it satire. And notice the passage as you just look to it. It begins with the fact that those who are idolaters are actually, they're, they're making nothing. They're calling it something, but it's actually a nothing. The things they delight in don't profit. The, the idols they make, they don't see, they don't know. The idolater is going to be put to shame. And then the irrationality is pointed out in the question in verse 10, who fashions a god or casts an idol that it's profitable for nothing? Why are you doing this? What do you think you just did? The whole picture here in Isaiah chapter 44 is of a human being who uses the crafts and, and, the, and the artistry that God has given human beings, and he knows he just made this thing, but nonetheless, he bows down to it and worships it. To put the matter as bluntly as possible, if you made it, it's not God. 
And yet over and over again, because of the pervasiveness of idolatry, Isaiah makes the point, and, and he, he makes it with greater intensity and clarity as he continues. He talks about those who make idols out of wood, and, and of course, he talks about the ironsmith who takes his cutting tools. And, and you'll notice that, by the way, these tools aren't much different than they were then now. And you still use, we still use planes and drills and saws and all the rest. Well, here it is. You have the carpenter. He does the same thing. He stretches out a line. He marks it with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He made this thing. Now, if we had time, it would be very, very profitable here to do an in-depth analysis in biblical theology just to this point. Because go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and you put those two complementary chapters together. Genesis chapter 1 is a chronological account, and Genesis chapter 2 as the theological commentary on what's been revealed in Genesis chapter 1. When you put those two chapters together and you look at the divine creation, God's creation of human beings, He made human beings on the sixth day of creation as the last act of creation. He made human beings the one being made in His image. That is to say, He made human beings in His image. That's how the Bible begins. Who are we? We are the image bearers of God. Does that mean that we look like God? No, because God does not have a body. But His image is what we are made. And the first thing that means is that we are the only creature able consciously to know God. All the creatures, all, all the animals, all of creation, but you think about all the creatures, and we love the creatures. That's, we're, we're drawn to look at them. We, we, we love to look at the animals and see how they declare the glory of God. They, they display the glory of God, but they don't do so intentionally. They don't do so consciously. But we do. We're able to do so. We, we are able to obey and disobey the Creator. We, we are made in His image in that we are also told that that means that we are given the responsibility of dominion and stewardship over all the, the animals and over all of creation, and thus made in God's image because He is the ultimate sovereign ruler. We who are made in His image, human beings have a ruling role in the world that God has made. But the point is, He made us in His image. But now you have human beings in absolute blindness and confusion making something in our image and calling it God. According to Scripture, that would be the most obvious irrationality. And you look and you say, well, we're far more sophisticated than that. that. That would not be the case now. Well, we do not have household deities in our homes. We're, we're sophisticated modern people. No idolatry here. Well, just keep in mind the fact that every material idol is a material expression of a godless idea. The, the first idolatry is not the thing. The first idolatry is the idea of the thing. And we're living in a society that doesn't even need the thing to accomplish horrifying idolatry. 
we now face a reality, and especially in our culture, in the hypermodern West, we face the reality of the most pervasive ideological idolatry that human beings have ever experienced. And you would think we would have learned from the 20th century. Just think of the horrifying, murderous ideologies of, of the Bolshevik Revolution and, uh, and of communism and then of fascism. And then you think of all the isms of the 20th century. You would think, well, certainly we would have learned not to be ideological idolaters, and yet we have developed new ideologies of idolatry, and they're increasingly taking hold. They are increasingly dominant in such a way that they now shape virtually all of prestige higher education in Western nations. You can go to a place like Oxford or Cambridge universities and the very architecture, the very shape of the campuses, the very names on all the buildings, they cry out institutions that were established for the defense of, the perpetuation of, and the extension of the faith of Jesus Christ our Lord. But they are now temples of ideological paganism. And it's not just true on the other side of the Atlantic. You know it's true here. And, and that's why we know that actually the closer you get to a center of higher education in the United States, the more secular the population becomes and the more ardently secular. And then the closer you get to the most prestigious centers of higher education, the more ardently hostile the culture comes at biblical Christianity. We look at a passage like Isaiah chapter 44 and we say… That must have been a pathetic pattern to see. It must have been. But the reality is, we're living in Isaiah's day right now. Only the added complication is, idolaters in Isaiah's day knew they were idolaters. And we're surrounded by people who think they're not. That includes those, by the way, who say that they have no religious affiliation. It is impossible to be a secular person. You're going to worship something. Made in the image of God, we as Christians understand everyone is going to worship something, is going to worship somebody. And, and you, you see all throughout our society various but strangely unified forms of this modern idolatry. And we see people who say, I don't believe in God, and yet they ascribe ultimacy to something. They pinned their hopes on something. Look at the passage. The climactic part of the passage is a picture of, of this irrationality. You look at verse 14, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. So he's watched the tree grow. Follow the story. He's watched the tree grow. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. Again, quite natural. One of, the, one of the most basic uses of wood is as fuel for a fire, and uh, one of our most basic human needs is the warmth and the power that comes from the fire, the ability to cook, and of course, the, the incredible energy that is released in a fire. We still live in a world in which most energy in the world, one way or another, still takes the form of the release of some kind of fire. 
And it's completely rational that this is actually a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28. To to watch a tree or to grow a tree and to cut it down, and again, exercising the right stewardship because he's raising trees. But he cuts one down and he cuts it in half, and with half of it, he uses it for fuel. This 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 is good. And not only that, but Isaiah tells us exactly what he does with it. He makes a fire and he warms himself. That's rational. That's rational. And, and, and then he uses the fire and he, he bakes bread. And I love in the Hebrew when it says he roasts a roast. What else would you do with a roast but roast it? That's completely rational. He roasts a roast. That's a picture of what should happen. You, you, you are not insane for roasting a roast. But the insanity comes with the other half of the tree. He cut the tree in half, and with half of it, he does completely sensical things. But with the other half of it, he forms it into an idol. And then he bows down to it and says, Thou art my God. Notice notice how the passage ends. Isaiah's declaration. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Let's just be honest. The bottom line is we do not want to be this man. We, we don't want this to be said of us. This is one of the strongest prophetic indictments found anywhere in Scripture because one, one, of the, one of the severest words of judgment that is made upon humanity in our sin and in our fallenness is this basic irrationality. One of my mentors in the faith was Francis Schaeffer, apologist in the 20th century, and he wrote a book entitled Escape from Reason, and, and, and that, was, that was very evident by the, the midpoint of the last half of the last century. It was a, it's, 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 it's an attempt to flee even reason itself. And here's what's interesting in the, the pattern of idolatry. As you look at Western civilization, the great turn in the Enlightenment was supposedly a turn to reason, a turn to rationality. And this was meaning reason at the expense of divine revelation. We don't need divine revelation anymore. We are rational creatures, and we will think these things through ourselves. We, we, will, we will take re- revelation, and we'll set it aside because that was yesterday uh, when people believed that God spoke in a book and that God spoke through prophets and that God spoke consummately and savingly through His Son. That was yesterday. Today, we are humanity come of age. We are capable of reason, and we're going to exercise exercise our reason. How did that work out? Well, just as a picture of Isaiah chapter 44, now we have reached the point where on most college and university campuses, reason is no longer trusted. 
Because now they've come to the conclusion that human reason is limited by the fact that we are situated people, we're born in a certain place, we have certain prejudices, so even the the laws that we would define for right or reasonable thinking are themselves corrupted, which means now everything's no longer even about truth and rationality, it's just about power. How do we know what's reasonable. One of the interesting affirmations of the Christian worldview is that God has established an entire cosmos by His creation. His glory in all creation is demonstrated in the fact that He has embedded truth in every atom and molecule of creation which is to say, we actually, even before we have the Scripture in special revelation, we have God's gift according to His own loving character of general revelation, which is accessible to everyone everywhere because it's even written into the warp and woof of creation. It takes an enormous leap of irrationality to deny the obvious. But human beings evidently are quite capable of it, or they're capable of it in part. You see, that's the problem. You've always got the other half of the tree, right? So with half of the tree, our modern gender theorists say there is no gender binary. That's that's the half of the tree. With the half of the tree, they say, we can no longer even use words like male and female, husband and wife, boy and girl, man and woman, with anything but a sense of irony because, after all, we are not bound to that gender binary. And we're not, going to, we're not going to give tenure or even hire as an assistant professor someone in our university who doesn't hold to that orthodoxy. If they hold to that old gender binary, then, then they have no place in acceptable modern America. That's with half the tree. But the other half of the tree, they want a puppy. And you need a gender binary to get a puppy. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, you still need a gender binary if you want any kind of offspring. And then you have again on the question of marriage, you have people who say, you know, look, this this is just a social invention. And it was invented in such a way as to, as to privilege heterosexual relationships and all the rest, and it can mean this or it can mean that. But it can't mean this and it can't mean that. And, it, and no matter how pervasive the cultural conspiracy and the cultural pressure, you can't make a this or that. And you're still stuck with the fact that if you want to reproduce, which is the very essence of the divine command in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and there is that yearning that God has put within us for babies and for children, and it's right and it's proper, but you still can't get, you can't get a baby without two different selves. And you can't get a baby without a womb. And the gender binary and the whole thing still comes back. We have people who say, I don't believe in any kind of objective moral standards, 
But notice again, they're the people who with the other half of the tree say, these are the new rules. And we look at that and we see the irrationality and we, we understand it. This helps us to understand the world around us because we want to think, we're, we're, we're prompted to think, we're tempted to think this is merely a political problem. Um, we're, we're tempted to think that. Or we're tempted to think this is, uh, th- this is a, a problem under the pressures of the modern age and it shows, it shows the, the effects psychologically of this kind of pressure. But this isn't in essence, a psychological problem. Or we can say it's probably a matter of sociology, but it's not a sociological problem. It's a theological problem. Uh, Isaiah will not let us not see that at base this is a theological problem because we're going to worship someone. Made in God's image, we're going to worship something. Now, reading Isaiah 44, let's just be clear. We don't want to be this man. We don't want to be irrational with two different halves of the tree. We do not want to bow down to an idol and say, you are my God. We don't want to feed on ashes. Furthermore, we don't want our neighbors to feed on ashes. We don't want anyone anywhere to feed on ashes. So where does rescue come Well, here's where the Word of the Lord tells us we have not rescued ourselves from this irrationality. Those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we did not figure this out. It was not our wisdom that led us to say, I've got a lie in my right hand. We're not smarter than the world. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're we're, we're not the intelligentsia in figuring this out. We can't look to the world in its confusion and say, you're stupid, we're smart. The only rescue is the grace and mercy of God who loves us enough, first of all, to have spoken to us in His Word. Here's where rescue comes. This is why it is so necessary, so absolutely necessary that we gather together as Christ's church, and you gather together in this place, in this church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, because you desperately need the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. Without the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and the kind of faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God you get in this church, and without armies of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, then the entire church of Jesus Christ will be compromised by this irrationality. Because we can't reason our way out of this. Reason is indeed a divine capacity that God has given us as a part of being in His image. But reason is dependent, as Christians understand, on revelation. So we need the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Christian parents, this is why you must teach your children the Word of God. You can't just teach them generalized Christian principles for happy living. You've got to teach your children the Word of God. You've got to make sure that they know the Word of God. You've got to hide it in their hearts that they might not sin against God. You've got to put it in their hearts in such a way that you will say they have memorized this, but they don't even know what it means. That's fine. It will be there when they need it. And furthermore, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God where we can't go. So we desperately need the preaching of the Word of God. 
But we also have to step back for a moment and say, but even our understanding of the Word of God, even our ability to hear the Word of God is predicated upon the fact that by God's grace, He has opened our eyes that we might see and opened our ears that we might hear. And that's all grace, and that's all Jesus. So how is it that we escape from this irrationality? It's only by Christ our Lord. It's only by the fact that we are, and here's that word that's so important to us, converted. We are regenerated. We come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit opens our heart to hear the gospel, and then everything changes. Our heart is renewed. In fact, a new heart, as Jeremiah says, is put within us. And yet our mind, as Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where, where our mind by the means of grace, by the preaching of the Word, by our maturity in Christ, is no longer conformed to this world but transformed. And, and that's what we see. We aren't able to save ourselves from this ridiculous irrationality, nor can our neighbors save themselves, nor can the faculty of the university save itself, nor can Hollywood save itself, nor can the Supreme Court of the United States save itself. Itself. So it turns out that the church's main witness doesn't come down to saying, think better. We're tempted to put it differently stop being stupid. <laughs> Again, you want a puppy? Figure it out. But that's not our main message. That does explain to us the challenge. But it's not just a challenge about people out there. It was the challenge inside our own heart, but for Jesus. And so a passage like this, even written in Holy Spirit-inspired satire, is not for us to say, well, I'm really glad I'm not that guy, but for us to say, but by the grace and mercy of God, I would still be that guy but Jesus saved me. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He saves me from my sin. By His death, burial, and resurrection, by His substitutionary atonement on the cross, He paid the full penalty for my sin. When the Father raised Him from the dead on the third day, He vindicated that sacrifice and that atonement and declared that salvation is found in the name of Jesus and anyone who believes on Him finds the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That is the only escape. The only escape is Jesus. So the next time you turn on the television or however you stream your news or dare to go into the digital netherworld and see what the world's saying, you're right to say they're crazy. But what should that mean for us? It means we've got to tell more people about Jesus. And you know what? We've got to tell people around the world who are still right now carving trees into images and who right now 
have various idolatries in which we could go after name after name after name. The reality is the passage like this just tells us, number one, how thankful we are that Jesus saved me and you. How much we need to understand the ongoing ministry of Christ within us by the Word of God and how much we are now energized to tell the world about Jesus because now we know what's at stake. We do not want to go and face our divine judge without telling everyone within the sound of our voice and beyond as we have opportunity, you're holding ashes in your hand. You need Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that indeed Jesus did pay it all. And we pray that even today there'll be some in the hearing of our voice who will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, may they see the ashes in their hand and lay them down to claim Christ. We declare this in the power of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.